right, well, let's open up God's Word together. We're going to hop right in this morning to Jeremiah chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, or if you want to pull one of the Bibles out of the pew in front of you, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. We are just looking at two verses this morning. That's it. After a few weeks in a row of doing 15, 17, 19 verses, today it's just two. But they are, as I've called them, a treasure in the wilderness. So... Jeremiah chapter 9. The words will also be up on the screen. I'll give you a chance to... Once Ryan gets it, then I'll go. You got it? (laughs) Uh, Starting at verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We'll read them again later on in the, uh, here, just, just in case this is causing some issues, I'm going to move this over a little bit. Um, we'll read them again later on in the sermon, because um, their two verses go by quick. But why are we looking at just these two verses? What's going on around them? What, what makes them stick out in the book of Jeremiah? Because these aren't words that we've read before. This is very different than what we've been typically reading in Jeremiah's prophetic book. Well, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, in this series on the book of Jeremiah, Israel, and specifically the nation of Judah, where you've got the great city of Jerusalem and the sacred temple, God's temple, the people have just really gone off the deep end, right? So much of the prophetic words in Jeremiah center on judgment. You broke the covenant agreement. You didn't just break it. You actually annihilated it. And these are the consequences. This is what's going to happen as a result of breaking covenant with God. The people of God are on the verge of exile, right? They're, they're about to be sent into the wilderness because of their sins, of having to witness another nation take them over, lay siege to their cities, burn down their, their homes, destroy their sacred temple, kill and pillage and lay waste to everything. And it's really all quite awful. And welcome to ancient living. This is a very different society, although based on some of the events that we're having to see in the news today, It's not always so different, but this is certainly ancient society. And these are hard words for us to grapple with. If you've been reading through the book of Jeremiah, it's a little bit of a slog at times because it's judgment, it's harsh words, it's it's words that are difficult to read. And, And Jeremiah's in this position of seeing all of this happening. He's hearing the train whistle blowing and nobody seems to be interested in getting off the tracks. So just prior to this passage in chapter 9, Jeremiah is questioning God. Are you not my comforter? Has the Lord left Zion? Is the king no longer here? He's actually known in scholarship as the weeping prophet for a reason. Multiple times in Jeremiah, he says, I I could weep all day and night for the slain of my people. He's just gushing out emotion because of what he's seeing happening to his people. And that's not because he feels like Israel has been wronged. Not at all. He knows the gravity of their sins. Again, in, earlier on in chapter 9, he says that the people are just hopping from one sin to the next and are not acknowledging God whatsoever. He sees this. 
And so in verse 16, the Lord says that he's going to do what he said he would do and what he's warned them about over and over and over. He's going to send them among the nations. He's going to exile them, nations that neither they nor their ancestors have known. They're being sent into exile. He's going to bring an end to his people, in other words. That's the context here. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're all going to be dead by the end of this. It's simply to say that Israel as a nation, as an entity, will no longer exist. For now. His people will not exist as the nation of Israel. They're being dispersed into lands that they do not know because they did not know him. See, there's this theme throughout Scripture. We see it over and over and over of knowing God. And the word knowing there in Hebrew implies a very intimate, familiar kind of knowing, not just a head knowledge or a factual knowledge. I know that two plus two equals four, but I don't know those numbers in a personal way. That would be weird, right? Head knowledge is different than personal knowledge. God is always acting in ways so that his people would know him that they would come to know him, to know his face, to know his character. That's the most important factor, actually, in his whole plan of salvation, that the people, his people, actually know him. Know him, not just know about him, know him. Abraham, for example, was, was called into a land that he did not know so that he would come to know this living God who was calling to him. See, God, God often takes us into unknown lands, into unfamiliar territories, wilderness seasons, for different reasons, but ultimately for the same purpose. Sometimes he takes us into the unknown to be tested and refined like Israel had to be. Sometimes we're pulled into wilderness seasons because he's wooing us back to himself because we've actually forgotten about him. And sometimes we find ourselves in a wilderness for no reason other than to be reminded of who he is and to come to know him on a new level, on a deeper level. God acts in ways so that his people will know him on deep, personal levels. He will not be satisfied with anything less. Jeremiah's tears, then, are actually something that's drawing him deeper into the heart of God, into relationship with God. And in the midst of all this talk of women wailing, if you look, if you still have your Bibles open, if you look around this passage, these two verses, it's, there's women wailing, there's houses being ruined, dead bodies are lying around, it's all very graphic. In the midst of all this chaos, though, there's these two verses that just stick out like a diamond in the rough. Verses 23 and 24, we're going to read them again. Let not the wise boast, I think it's the next... Yes, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Lest you forget, he says, lest you forget in the midst of your wilderness chaos who I am and what I'm about. 
And notice the words that were compared here in these verses. There's two very different ways of being, of knowing, of living that we are presented with here. On the one hand, we have the kind of values that kings and royalty would only dream of, right? Strength, riches, wisdom. I mean, these are all the things that Solomon, one of the former kings of Israel, prayed for and asked for. Why would they not be good things? These are things that many humans often, if not always, value. Strength, wisdom, power, gifts that can be good if used for good purposes. But more often than not, they are the kind of values that can very easily become tainted and lead to a kind of self-sufficiency, right? Wisdom becomes intellectual pride, right? I'm, I'm smarter than you. Strength can become just sheer power. I'm stronger than you. It's always by comparison, right? It's always about comparison. Riches become greed. I've got more than you do. But then on the other side of these, these verses, on the other side, are three things that God most values. Heavenly values that bring God delight when they are done on earth. Things that can be practiced by those who seek to know him because they're revealed in his character. He embodies these values. What are they? Well, in our translation, we read this. That God is the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness. And for the sake of deepening our understanding here, I'm actually going to push for slight, a slight adjustment in language. And simply because our English words do not always encapsulate the Hebrew language very well. The Hebrew language was actually quite simple. Um, and in English, we, English, as many of you probably are familiar with, and for those of you who, for whom English is a second language, you'll know this, English is a very complicated language. And there's like a, a word used for every tiny little thing. Hebrew, actually, each word often encapsulated more. So there was more weight to each of its words. And the word that's actually used here for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which is a, a gorgeous Hebrew word that simply cannot be simplified into one English word. It's, it's often used to talk about covenant love, covenant loyalty, loving kindness, faithfulness. All of that, all those bits and pieces of God's character is wrapped up in this one word, okay? And based on the context of this passage, I think knowing that is important because there's a comparison happening here, right? Where Israel is inconsistent and unfaithful and unloyal towards God, God is depicted as being very faithful and very consistent and very loyal towards his people. He embodies fidelity and loyalty. His love is unfailing. All of that is wrapped up in this one word, kindness, okay? So when you read that word, just have that scope in your mind. Secondly, the word here used for justice isn't the normal one used for justice. This word is centered more around the idea of fairness. God is a good judge who knows how to execute judgment and justice with fairness, which is an interesting thing to point out in the context of Israel's judgment. Lest you forget, this God is a good judge. He has judged you fairly. He knows how to execute judgment with fairness, with a fair verdict, with equity. That's the nuance here. He doesn't show favoritism, in other words. He judges fairly. And then the last word is the word actually that we talked about last week, if you'll remember. The word for righteousness is actually the same word used 
for justice. He is a God of justice. So as scholar Chris Wright puts it, God will not be worshipped and cannot be known apart from a commitment to these things, to righteousness and justice, to faithfulness and love and loyalty, the things that define God's own character and are his delight. As Jeremiah prophesied later on in his book in chapter 22, when speaking of the former king Josiah, God says that he, Josiah, defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Is that not what it means to know me? Israel failed to know God, to know him. Failed to embody what God cared about. And so they ended up looking no different than the nations around them. In fact, they actually looked worse. They put their confidence in earthly wisdom, strength, and power. Those were the things that they wanted. And so because their eyes were turned towards those things, they went completely blind and then tried to lead others in their blindness. They were supposed to be a community that was ordered differently that delighted in what God delighted for, that turned their eyes towards his face so that his face and knowing that face could define what they did, where their social policies and laws and ways of being were meant to reflect what he delighted in. And before we go on to thinking that this was just an Israel problem, we today are faced with that same choice, that same comparison on our own hands to seek after the self-serving ways of, of worldly security and render our own hearts blind to God's loyal love, or to put our full confidence and trust and faith in he who does not compare to anyone in how he holds together these attributes of love, fairness, and righteousness. There is no one else like him. No one else. He simply does not compare. But here's the key question that I think this passage is asking of us today. Can we boast about a God like this? Can we let ourselves boast about a God like this? Jeremiah is clear. Don't boast about wisdom. Don't boast about strength. Don't boast about riches or wealth or possessions. Don't boast about something that you have and someone, that someone else does not unless it's to boast in the Lord. Don't brag about anything unless it's to brag about him. To boast about who your God is. I mean, imagine, just imagine, knowing Jesus on such a deep intimate level that you can't help but be proud to be a believer. Not sheepish or embarrassed or a little worried about what other people think or hesitant or unsure. Proud. It's the only type of pride that is actually good for you. Pride to say that you follow Jesus. Not that I follow a certain Christian leader or that I'm a part of a certain Christian grouping or denomination or church, but that I follow Jesus. Because look at how wonderful he is. Look at how wonderful he is, our wonderful, merciful Savior, because these are the things that he values. 
I'm proud to say that I follow Jesus because this is who Jesus is. Are we proud to say that he is our God? Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, not many of you had wisdom, power, or strength. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see what he's doing there? He's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah. You want wisdom? He says, look at Jesus. You want strength, pure, holy strength to withstand difficult seasons? Look at Jesus. You want riches, true treasures of heaven that last and endure? Look at Jesus. See, everything that Jeremiah was saying about Yahweh in the Old Testament is now being used for Jesus. Paul quotes him again in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In other words, boast, says the Lord, boast that you have the understanding to know me. That you know that it is I who save you, that make you holy, that loves you with a loyal love that never ends. To know that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, fair judgments, and righteous justice because I delight in these things. This is simply what Israel did not understand. This was their ultimate failure. And in this text in Jeremiah, these, these two verses that stick out, these verses were meant to be read later on, right? These prophets weren't just writing down these words for the present time. They were meant to be read later on in Israel's history so that the people who were dispersed among the nations could look back on these events and see what they should have done. They were written so that Israel could look back and, and realize or be reminded of what they should have been boasting in and taking pride in. And, of course, they serve as a caution to us as well, to ask us, what do we take pride in? What do we boast about? And can we boast passionately, shamelessly, and habitually about who our God is. Can I tell people that my God is kind? 
in a world where people are quick to be angry, quick to polarize and point out differences, quick to be in conflict and avoid resolution, easily prone to irritation and frustration, prone to point out people's flaws, to, to publicly humiliate and shame, to cancel culture, everything, where loyalty is sparse and love is fleeting, where commitments aren't honored and people take the easy way out. In that world, my God is loyal. Consistent, faithful, and kind. He desires kindness. He delights in it. And I want to look like him. Can I tell people that? Can I tell people that my God is fair? That he desires equity? In a world where people don't treat one another very well, where people go treated unfairly, where earthly judges don't always get it right, where crimes go unaccounted for, where scams and thievery happen on a minute-by-minute basis and scammers get away with it, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and hierarchies continue to be built all around us, where the mighty triumph over the humble, where mercy is selective rather than offered to all. In that world, my God is fair. He desires equity and fairness. He delights in it. And I want to be like him. Can I tell them that my God is just and righteous in a world where the immigrant is looked down on for being different or for taking someone else's job, where the elderly are taken advantage of, where the young and the poor are exploited and abused, where everyone seems to only work things for their own advantage, where people are not treated with dignity and compassion. In that world, my God is righteous and just. He desires righteousness and justice. He delights in it. And I want to be like him. You know, it's so strange to me that so many think that Christianity is all about following rules. Because when we talk about who God is and how he's revealed himself in Jesus, it's so clear that following this God is entirely and completely and utterly all about knowing him. Knowing him. And in knowing him, as we've spoken about before, we realize actually that we have first been known by him. That in our lowly state, he has extended a grace to us that is utterly unfathomable. And that his loyalty to us is unmatchable. His love is simply uncontainable. Right? That song, here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as a flood. We will not respond any differently than Israel if we don't recognize what it is that we've received. If we don't recognize the character of the God who has given it to us. Israel chose to take the easy way out rather than to follow the long road of obedience in the same direction. And simply because the grace that was offered to them wasn't cheap. It demanded a response. Scholar Adam C. Welsh puts it this way, the grace which gave much asked much. It demanded self-surrender. And without self-surrender on the part of those who received it, grace became an empty word. 
See, there was, there was no reason for Israel to forsake all the other gods that they had adopted because it took so little to follow them. Those gods didn't demand self-surrender. Those gods didn't demand the kind of obedience that Yahweh had asked of them. He required something of them. And as Welsh puts it, that the relationship that he had with Israel did have a yoke and bonds, but these bonds were the bonds of love. Like, like a marriage, the kind of commitment and the kinds of expectations and requirements that last. That's why he's a covenant-making God, because what he does and what he asks of us is so that the relationship will last. That's the whole point, because it's all about knowing him. Not knowing about him, knowing him. Can I boast in a God who demands something of me because his demands are for the sake of me coming to know him better, but also others coming to know him like I do? Can I boast in a God who desires to bless other people through me, who asks that I seek to know him in a self-surrendering kind of way so that I can speak of him and of his character accurately? I can't speak about him very well if I don't know him. And if I'm not proud to say that I know him. I recently read an article that interviewed a pastor in Vancouver named Christina Dawson. And she's of the Nuchanulth Nations on the western end of Vancouver Island. And serves as a lead pastor of Street Church in Vancouver. Which is quite something. But... This past July, a few weeks before the Pope came to visit and to offer his apology, perhaps some of you will remember that, uh, Dawson's church was actually one of the churches that was burned down. So three weeks prior to the Pope coming, her church was burned down, which is just awful, as you can imagine, right? She's First Nations herself, <laughs> and she's existing in Vancouver and is stuck in the middle of this culture war that has some very misguided understandings of justice. But in, in the midst of that chaos, to then hear the Pope's apology and, and receive it for what it was, she was actually galvanized to share Christ even more with her indigenous neighbors. She said this, What the priests and the nuns did at these residential schools to us was evil. But the worst thing they did to us, she said, they made us indigenous people hate the name of Jesus. That's the worst thing that they did, she says. In other words, the witness of Jesus and the making of the person of Jesus known was completely lost. And it is, frankly, sheer grace that Dawson herself and many others somehow are still willing to herald the name of Jesus. Although her own church building was burned down, she's been inspired by the Spirit to help others know who her God really is and what he really cares about. In other words, she's not shying away simply because others have done evil in the name of Jesus. She knows that that's not her Jesus. She knows that that's not what he's about. She's taking the narrow way, right? The obedient way, the one that requires a kind of courage 
to boast in who this God really is. And in her position, that would take a lot of courage. The hope in all of Scripture, the end hope of all of Israel's wilderness wanderings, ultimately was to lead them to a place of truly knowing the God who had called them there, of truly knowing his character. But as it turned out, it would take God coming in the flesh, God incarnate coming to dwell among his people in the person of Jesus for the people of Israel to see who he really was and how far he would go to reach them, to enable them to know him and to know what he was really about. See, we don't have to try to sell our faith. We should not ever feel pressured to try to make our faith more relevant or attractive. We don't have to try to make our God more attractive because Jesus can't possibly be more attractive. We just have to know him. And to know him on a deep level and to know that no matter how messy or convoluted or despairing our own situations might be, he will always be trying to draw us closer to himself. That is his whole mission, to draw us deeper into relationship with him. Because when we know him, Not only are we enabled to be prophetic witnesses in the wilderness, as we've been talking about through this series, but we are drawn back to the one who holds all of history, all of salvation history in his hands. And in that space, our problems may not seem so large anymore. In Jeremiah 24, the Lord says this, My eyes will watch over them for their good. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all their heart. We seek to know him only to find out again and again that we are already known, that we have actually been pursued, that we've actually been given a heart to seek after him in response. Who else really is like our God? So, if we boast, may we be a people who boast in this, that we have the understanding to know who our God is, what he's like, what he delights in, how he's revealed himself to us, what he has asked of us, what he has done for us, and most importantly, may we be a people who boast that this is a God we want to know more. Let's pray. Living God, 
My prayer this morning is simply this, that we want to know you, that we desire to know you more. And as we now come to your table, Lord, as we continue to worship, as we continue to reflect and think about what it is that you have really done for us and who you are, inspire us by your Spirit to come to know you on a deeper level, that we may be galvanized to share you, not in a hesitant or unsure way, but in a way that says, if I boast, I will boast about you. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.